This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For information on how you may obtain an accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree with online courses, please visit us at virtual.rts.edu. We're going to finish up, hopefully quickly, this history so we can actually get into the looking at the covenants themselves. I don't want to have gone through two weeks without actually exposing you all any to the actual covenants themselves. So we're going to really skip over and just focus on uh, the last part of the history of covenant theology that has a significant bearing on a lot of what currently is being written and discussed on covenant theology. Uh, and to, to take all that into consideration, we need to spend a couple of minutes talking about a man by the name of Meredith Klein. Um, Klein spelled with a K. K-L-I-N-E. Uh, Meredith Klein uh, just died a couple years ago in 2007. Uh, he was born in 1922, died in 2007. So he's a very, very recent man. Uh, He was a professor of Old Testament at a couple different seminaries. He taught at Westminster for a good while. He taught at Gordon-Conwell. He taught some classes at RTS and then finished out his career, I believe, at Westminster in California. Uh, So he spread his teaching around a lot of places, uh, has been enormously influential in his uh, understanding of covenant theology, and it's a a view of the covenants that you really have to at least have an awareness of in order to do much uh, reading in current covenant theology, particularly uh, in uh, the Mike Horton book that that we're looking at this semester. So uh, we'll spend a couple minutes on Meredith Klein uh, to see what what he has to to offer us. Now, before you get to Meredith Klein, you have to first uh, understand a man by the name of George Mendenhall. And that's his last name there, Mendenhall. Uh, Mendenhall... Uh, was a professor of uh, Near Eastern Studies at the University of Michigan. I believe he's still alive, even. So he's a, you know, another you know, fairly contemporary guy. Um, he was particularly active in the 1950s, around the you know, middle of the century. And at that time, a lot, practically all of Old Testament scholarship was either reacting against well, largely was reacting against or was working in agreement with uh, Julius Wellhausen, or Wellhausen, if y'all are probably familiar with his name. Uh, Wellhausen is probably best known for his uh, documentary hypothesis of the Old Testament. Uh, he was lived in the 19th century, a German scholar, uh, essentially said that the, particularly the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, uh, were not written by Moses, but rather they were a compilation of writings by four different authors. He had the JDEP, if that all that sounds familiar, the uh, Yahwehist writer, the Deuteronom- Deuteronomistic writer, the Eloistic writer, and the Priestly writer. You know, you'll, if, you have, if you're not familiar with that, you'll get into it in some of your classes. Uh, basically, he, he thought that the Pentateuch was a much later compilation by several different writers. And one of the outcroppings of Wellhausen's teaching 
was that Israelite religion, as it was known in those circles, was not something that was divinely revealed by God, but rather it was essentially an evolutionary concept amongst the Israelites. Uh, it was a, a religious notion that had grown over the generations, and then they had uh, rather uh, disingenuously written it down as if it had happened a long time ago. Now, one of the uh, principal things that Wellhausen talked about was, was the idea of covenant. And he said that covenant, the idea of Israel being in covenant with God, was something that had developed more in the time of the prophets than in the time of Moses. And when you read in the Pentateuch about uh, God entering into covenant with, very, with various men, that didn't happen then. That was an idea that had originated more with the prophets and had been uh, imported into the history of Israel. Now, Mendenhall, along with a bunch of other guys, were reacting against Wellhausen, wanting to prove essentially that the Pentateuch and the ideas in the Pentateuch were as ancient as they claimed to be, that they were dated actually to the time of Moses around the second millennium B.C. rather than to the time of the prophets, you know, eight, eight seven, six hundreds B.C. So Mendenhall wanted to prove essentially that the Pentateuch was, uh, was as old as it claimed for itself to be. And in 1955, Mendenhall wrote what was probably his most important work, and it was called Law and Covenant in Israel and the Ancient Near East. And Mendenhall thought that he had essentially found the key to disproving Wellhausen because archaeologists had come across this uh, large... Uh, Discovery, not just one discovery, but had, you know, had found a, a lot of uh, treaties from the ancient Near East, treaties particularly from the, uh, the Hittite Empire. Uh, the Hittite Empire generally is dated from 1450 down through 1200 B.C., so it's roughly uh, contemporary with the events of the Pentateuch. And Mendenhall said that when you looked at these ancient Near Eastern Hittite treaties, it proved that the Pentateuch was as old as it claimed to be. Um, now, this, these Hittite treaties, the, you know, the, the supposition was that they were a fairly common form, that the, way of, that the way that the Hittite Empire drew up their treaties was pretty pervasive throughout the world at the time. Certainly, the Hittite Empire was uh, a, a large and powerful entity at the time, and the supposition was that the Israelites, being nomadic, as they were termed by this school of thought, uh, they would have come into contact with the Hittites. They would have been familiar with the Hittite treaties. So this uh, store of really pagan political treaties had a bearing on the Israelites and on their uh, recording of their history. Now, a man named Karozik, a Slavic fellow, examined all of these ancient Near Eastern treaties that were found, all these Hittite treaties, and he said that within them, you know, across this whole sampling that they found, there were these six common elements that essentially every Hittite treaty had these six elements. It started out with the preamble, uh, essentially identifying the parties to the covenant or to the, to the treaty. It then had a historical prologue, which laid out the history that had led up to the establishment of the treaty. It had stipulations that said what was expected of either side in the treaty. It then had provision 
for depositing the treaty normally in the temple of the gods of the different nations. They then had a list of witnesses to the treaty. They most often were the gods of the different nations. And then it concluded with curses and blessings. You know, curses if you broke the treaty, blessings if you kept it. Karozik said that these were the six standard components of Hittite treaties. Well, Mendenhall in the 50s came along and built off of Karozik's work, and he said, yes, that's, those are the components of Hittite treaties. And in addition, Mendenhall identified three more that he said they weren't necessarily always in the written document of the treaty, but they were part of the treaty process. He said you had a formal oath whereby the, the less powerful party to the treaty would take an oath in which he swore that if he broke his part of the covenant, he would uh, suffer punishment. There was a ceremony by which that oath was enacted. And then there was a, a set form laid out for how the, party, the parties to the covenant or the treaty would be prosecuted if they broke the covenant. So Mendenhall said that within all of these Hittite treaties and the, the enactment of them, you had Karosik's six elements plus these additional three. Now, the reason that that is important when you look at the Pentateuch is because Mendenhall then looked at the, actually at the Hexateuch, as it's known, if you add, take Genesis through Deuteronomy, then you add Joshua in there as well. He looked at those first six books of the Bible and said that throughout them you find these same elements laid out in, in Israel's covenant relationships. Uh, he particularly looked um, at uh, Exodus chapter 24, he looked at Deuteronomy as a whole, as a, a whole treaty, he thought it was, and then also um, at Joshua chapter 24 as well. And he, he said that particularly when you come to those chapters, you see the scriptures manifesting the same pattern, what for, for, the, what for the Hittites were political treaties, were for the Israelites their covenants with God. Now, why that is important is because when, you know, when the Hittite Empire faded around 1200 B.C., the empire that took over, the Assyrian Empire, was the next uh, ascendant power, their treaty forms were drastically different. They didn't have this same form. They didn't have historical prologue. Their curses and blessings were much more detailed. They, you know, they were, there were noticeable differences between a Hittite treaty and an Assyrian treaty. And so what Mendenhall said is that since the biblical record falls into this pattern, it can be dated to the time of the Hittite Empire. If it were later, if, it were, uh, if the Pentateuch had been written in the time period that Wellhausen said it had been written, then it would show more of an Assyrian model of treaties within the covenant form. But in fact, it adheres much more closely to the Hittite form. Therefore, it should be dated to the time of the Hittite Empire. Therefore, it is actually dated to the time that you would expect if you accept Mosaic authorship. So Mendenhall thought in these Hittite treaties, he had found the key, kind of the internal key, to proving uh, that the scriptures, at least the Pentateuch, uh, was as old as it claimed to be. Now that um, conclusion in and of itself is well and good, and certainly we 
except the Mosaic authorship. We believe that the Pentateuch is that old. But in Mendenhall's shift to these, to, to looking at these Hittite treaties, um, he introduced what seemed to me to be several problems into covenant theology. Uh, first of all, he didn't actually achieve what he set out to achieve because within a decade or so, scholars were arguing other things about you know, Hittite treaties. He didn't prove what he was wanting to prove within the scholarly community necessarily. But also he took the study of the covenants, of the divine covenants, and focused them much more on the mechanics of the way that a covenant is done as opposed to the purpose that a covenant is pursuing. It might seem like a fairly subtle shift, but it was a shift that played out over the following decades has really changed the character and the tenor of covenant theology. Uh, it, currently, covenant theology is focused much more on these sorts of issues than on the issues that you'll, you'll find addressed in older uh, views of covenant theology. And more than anything else, Mendenhall and then another guy who came after him who built on his work by the name of Delbert Hillers, and you'll see particularly in, uh, or in, in a lot of reading on covenant theology, you'll see these two men's names referenced a lot, Mendenhall and Hillers. Um, both of them essentially pushed matters too far. And they noticed similarities between Hittite treaties and some of the forms in the scriptures in the Pentateuch. Uh, they noticed the similarities, but then they pushed that too far and allowed what are, quite frankly, pagan treaties to shape how they're reading divine scripture. Uh, you notice that particularly when it comes to the, uh, to the matter of the Mosaic Covenant. Um, Mendenhall, you know, he notices the similarity between, he, he focuses particularly on Exodus 24, the similarities he claims between Exodus 24 and these Hittite political treaties. And he says, well, Exodus 24 is a political treaty. It's a bunch of nomadic tribes who have emerged from Egyptian slavery. They're forming themselves into a government. Um, that's what's going on in Exodus 24. Uh, it's not so much a, uh, you know, a, a matter of God entering into covenant with Israel, but of Israel banding together and creating a political sort of document. And as, as strange as that sounds, you find echoes of that even still in covenant theology. Um, and we mentioned before that some people see the Mosaic Covenant as being partly in the covenant of works, partly in the covenant of grace. And a lot of times the form that that takes is that you know, Sinai, the Mosaic Covenant, is seen as being a national covenant for Israel, a covenant that they had to adhere to, to some degree at least, in order to remain in the Promised Land. It's seen as dealing with... Um, really primarily with the, the, the governing of the theocracy. Uh, the, the idea of Sinai as a political treaty uh, actually continues up through today in a lot of covenant theology that you find, and that's largely traceable, largely, largely traceable to Mendenhall. Um, any questions on what Mendenhall was doing? On some of the, you, and a lot of times you'll see these uh, elements of, of Hittite treaties mentioned in various readings. Any questions about any of that? Okay, now the, the reason that Mendenhall is so important is because his work was very formative for 
Meredith Klein, who I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. Now, Klein, you know, among, among other things, he, he argues that within uh, the covenant of grace, there is a distinction between two different kinds of covenants. You know, within the, within the Hittite treaties that Mendenhall was, uh, was researching, within those Hittite treaties, there are essentially two different types of treaties. On the one hand, you have a suzerainty treaty, and a, a suzerainty treaty is a treaty between a suzerain And a suzerain is essentially a, a small-time king, a, not necessarily a head of a huge empire, but, you know, but a powerful, fairly powerful king. A treaty between a suzerain and a vassal, a vassal being a servant, particularly a servant country or people group. And a suzerainty treaty would occur when a suzerain essentially took over a vassal state and told the vassal state, you have to serve me now. You have to give me troops when I need them. You have to pay tribute. You have to do all these things. And in return, I won't destroy you. That's essentially what the suzerain, uh, the suzerainty treaty comes down to. The suzerain would give protection to the vassal. He'd come to the vassal's aid uh, in return for the vassal giving his loyalty to the suzerain. Uh, that was one genre of treaty within the Hittite treaties. There was a suzerainty treaty. Obviously, it involves obligations. You know, the vassal is obligated to the suzerain. If he betrays the suzerain, then he most often will be killed. On the other hand, you have, within the Hittite treaties, you have what were known as royal grant treaties. And a royal grant, a lot of times also would occur between a suzerain and a vassal, but they were not conditional covenants. In a royal grant, the suzerain would essentially just give something to the vassal. You know, the vassal maybe had been particularly loyal in a particular instance or had helped quash a rebellion or whatever the case may be, and the suzerain would just give something unconditionally to the vassal. So you, within the Hittite treaties, you had these two different genres of treaties. And Klein uh, suggested that since the suzerain, or since the Hittite treaties are so formative for the scriptures, supposedly by Mendenhall's supposition, that this distinction between treaties within the Hittite treaties is also found in the scriptures. And so when you look at covenants within the scriptures, the first thing that you have to do in order to properly interpret the covenant is to determine whether it's a suzerainty treaty or whether it's a royal grant treaty. Is, this a, you know, is it a treaty where there's some amount of stipulation and conditionality, or is it a treaty in which everything is given unconditionally to the lesser party? Uh, Klein said that that is a, a distinction that carries over into the scriptures and that shapes the way that we understand particular treaties. So, you know, in, uh, the, in, in doing that, Klein even had a way that you could distinguish between the two quite handily. Uh, Klein said that to determine whether a treaty was a suzerainty treaty or whether, excuse me, a covenant, whether a covenant was of, a, of the suzerainty type 
or of the royal grant type to determine that, you would see who swore the covenant oath. If you remember, Mendenhall said that uh, an essential component of all the Hittite treaties was this swearing of a formal oath. And Klein said that you can tell what type of covenant any covenant is by who swears the oath. If God swears the oath in the covenant, then it's a royal grant treaty. There's no conditionality. It's pure promise. If man swears the oath, then it's a suzerainty treaty or a suzerainty sort of covenant. And in that sort of covenant, there's conditionality, there's obedience or duties required of man. Uh, there are different types of covenants. Now, the um, prime example uh, for, for Klein of a royal grant treaty comes in Genesis 15. And we'll look at Genesis 15 in great, greater detail later. But essentially in Genesis 15, God himself swears the covenant oath. He's the one who takes the obligation on himself of fulfilling the covenant. So since God takes the oath, Genesis 15, the oath to Abraham, Genesis 15 falls into this royal grant category. And Klein calls that promise covenant. It is, it is a promise covenant because God promises everything to Abraham. Nothing is required of Abraham in return. The primary example of a suzerainty covenant in Klein's view was Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, you know, God has given the law from Mount Sinai. The Israelites assemble at the base of Sinai and swear to uphold the covenant. And since in Exodus 24, since it's Israel swearing the covenant oath, then that makes that a suzerainty covenant in Klein's estimation. And he called that a law covenant. It's a law covenant because there's this underlying law. There's requirements that man must meet. Uh, and if he doesn't, there are consequences. And so one of... You know, Klein had a lot to say about covenant theology, but his, his fundamental distinction was between the law covenant and the promise covenant. And he said every covenant within the scriptures, every divine covenant falls into either the law covenant camp or the promise covenant camp. Uh, and like I say, it can be distinguished by who swears the oath. Now, it's at that point, it seems to me, that Klein and those who follow after him need to be most fundamentally critiqued. Because in making this distinction within the divine covenants between a law covenant and a promise covenant, they have essentially missed the unity of the divine covenants uh, and the unity of God's covenant purposes. As you go through the scriptures and you look at the covenants, every covenant that you find has elements of both law and promise. No covenant is entirely law, and no covenant is entirely promise. There are elements of both in every covenant. Klein says each covenant has to be placed in one camp, and by doing that, each covenant is distorted. If it's placed over here in the law covenant camp, you miss the elements of promise in the covenant. If it's placed over here in the promise camp, then you miss the elements of law in the covenant. Essentially, Klein has a 
very reductionist view of the covenants, and that ends up making him distort each of the covenants, you know, to greater or lesser degrees. And so one of the things we'll be doing as we go through uh, each of the covenants, we'll see how each of them have elements of law, each have, coven- have, have, have elements of promise. Now, you know, certain covenants emphasize one or the other more. Uh, there are different emphases within each of the covenants, but each of them do have um, both elements. And it seems to me that Klein's error in this regard really gets back to his uh, reliance on these Hittite treaties uh, and the work that Mendenhall did with them. Because within, within the Hittite treaties, there is a pretty clear-cut distinction between suzerain or suzerainty treaties and royal grant, grant treaties. But the Hittite treaties, by definition, really, are discrete units. I mean, a, a covenant or a treaty amongst men has to contain within it everything that bears on the covenant. If you enter into a treaty negotiation with a foreign nation, you want everything that impinges on that treaty to be in the treaty, or it could be trouble later. But when you get to the divine covenants, that's not the case. Each of the divine covenants, whether you're looking at Abraham or at Moses or at David, each of the divine covenants is part of the supra-historical, if you want to call it that, the supra-historical covenant of grace. Uh, you can't isolate any of the divine covenants from considerations that are exterior to it. The promises made to Abraham impact everything with Moses. What was done with Moses impacts everything with David. I mean, you can't divide them up into discrete units. And so by supposing that they can be divided in that way, Klein has ended up distorting all of them because he, he, he hasn't taken into account uh, the fullness of each of the covenants. Uh, essentially, he's taken, he's taken a distinction from ancient Near Eastern political treaties, and he's brought it into the scriptures where it doesn't actually exist, and that has ended up distorting the record of the covenants. Um, and all that might seem a little bit strange. I don't know if you've done much reading in covenant theology. Maybe you'll recognize some of that. But it's, as I said a couple minutes ago, it's, it's currently a very in vogue approach to the covenants. Um, you get, you, if you've done much of the reading in Horton, you see that he does a lot with Mendenhall and Hillers and Klein. He, he's very much of that approach to covenant theology. And like I say, it's a, uh, the, the ascendant view within Reformed theology today. Uh, but I think that underlying that there's this faulty distinction uh, between a promise covenant and a law covenant that ends up skewing the whole matter of covenant theology. Uh, and we'll address it at, at each point along the way as we go through, but I think it's helpful up front to see what the distinction is and how they've arrived at the distinction. Anybody have any questions about? Just to clarify, you're not necessarily saying the Hittite broader form is invalid. You're just saying they're pushing it too far. Or are you saying that it's not really relevant to the covenant of grace in its dispensation? I think um, I think it, it's uh, the the Hittite form is valid, and um, I think it can be useful for the very limited purpose that Mendenhall used it. Very limited of trying to establish the dating of the Pentateuch. Um, 
I recall correctly, I think even Dr. Kurd in some of his commentaries refers to similarities uh, between the two. And I think it's legitimate to say, you know, to point out that there is a, a commonality of form. The problem comes is the problem comes when you then push it into allowing these forms to shape the way that you read and interpret the scriptures, which I think that that error began in Mendenhall and then was I think furthered even in Klein. Um, it was the it certainly was the way treaties were done then, and there are some echoes of it in some of the ways that the scriptures are structured or portions of them at least, but. Um, I think the error comes in when that, that essentially becomes a, a controlling paradigm or hermeneutic of how we read God's covenant relations with his people. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Any other questions on that? All right. Well, I think with that, we will be finished with the history uh, there's certainly plenty more that could be said, um, but we'll we'll stop with that, and we will move into looking specifically at the covenant of works. Yeah, we're going to uh, begin and work our way through the covenants. Uh, we'll start with the covenant of works, uh, like we said a little while ago. If you look at the covenants and the way they fell out temporally, as you move from uh, creation, or even from the beginning of time up through uh, the consummation of the age, you, if you were moving that way, you'd begin with the covenant of redemption. But in considering them systematically, it's more helpful to begin with the covenant of works. Now, the covenant of works uh, obviously refers to the, the pre-fall covenant between God and Adam, with Adam being the, the federal head of all humanity. Uh, he was the, the covenant head uh, of all of his posterity. Now, the, even in the course of the reading that we'll be doing in this class, you'll, you'll find that there are different names sometimes that are used for the covenant of works. Uh, even within the Westminster Standards, there's a little bit of variation. In the Confession, uh, chapter 7, section 2, it's called the covenant of works. But then in the Shorter Catechism, question 12, I believe it is, um, it's called the covenant of life. Uh, there's some variation and terminology there. Like we said last hour, Robertson calls it the covenant of creation. Uh, sometimes you hear it called the covenant of nature. Uh, there's different ways to refer to it, but we'll, we'll use the traditional terminology of covenant of works. Um, and if you've had a chance to start into any of the reading, you might have seen that there is a little bit of disagreement even over the validity of the covenant of works. Is the covenant of works really a covenant? Uh, is it biblical to say that there was a covenant relationship between God and Adam in his innocence before the fall? Now, probably the best known skeptic of that covenant of works was John Murray. You're probably familiar with John Murray. Uh, he was a theologian in the, of the 20th century, taught at Westminster, uh, wrote Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Uh, very, very sound theologian. But he, he is not only skeptical of, but he, he rejects the notion of a covenant relationship between God and Adam in his innocence. Uh, Murray says that there was 
a pre-fall relationship between God and Adam. They were in relationship, but it wasn't a covenant. Uh, Instead of calling it a covenant, Murray calls it the Adamic administration. Um, That's the terminology he uses. If you want to read Murray on the Adamic administration, uh, there's an essay on it in Volume 2 of Murray's Collected Writings. It's essentially his class lectures on it. But Murray uh, views the relationship of God and Adam and his innocence as being the Adamic administration rather than a covenant. And Murray gives four reasons why this relationship was not a covenant. And three of, three of those we'll get to at the end, but one of them is a good starting point for looking at the covenant of works. Uh, the, the foremost reason for Murray's reticence about calling God's relationship with Adam in innocence a covenant is that the scriptures don't use the word berit, or the Hebrew for covenant, uh, to describe that relationship. Uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, where we read about God and Adam's relationship when Adam uh, was in his innocence, the word berit does not occur. Uh, in fact, the word berit, the Hebrew for covenant, doesn't occur until Hebrews, uh, Hebrews until Genesis chapter 6, verse 18. Uh, there in Genesis 6, it's referring to the covenant between God and Noah. So, Murray argued that since the scriptures don't explicitly call that relationship a covenant, it's not a covenant. And whatever it is, it's not a covenant because the scriptures don't put the word berit with it. Uh, Murray was very influenced by uh, Gerhardus Voss, if you're familiar with him, and the kind of the biblical theology school uh, that placed a lot of emphasis on specific terminology and tracing the, the use of vocabulary. And so Murray said since the word covenant didn't appear, it wasn't a covenant. Now, certainly, it's, it's an undeniable fact that the word berit does not occur in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It, does, it, in fact, doesn't occur until Genesis 6, like we said. But when you look at the whole canon of Scripture, that actually is not that decisive of a point. Um, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, particularly verses 1 through 17, we have the account of the establishment of the Davidic covenant. You know, God, you know, David says he wants to build a house for the Lord. Nathan, bless, the prophet, blesses it. Then God tells Nathan that you shouldn't have blessed it. And so Nathan comes back and tells David not to build um, a house for God. And God tells David that he'll build a house for him, uh, that he'll establish his seed upon the throne of Israel forever. It's the establishment of the Davidic covenant. And it's universally accepted as such. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the word berit never occurs. It's clearly the establishment of the Davidic covenant, but it never is explicitly termed a covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, when you get later on in the scriptures, particularly when you get to the Psalms, uh, especially Psalm 89 and uh, several places within Psalm 89, the scriptures refer to this relationship dating from 2 Samuel 7. They refer to it as a berit as a covenant. So when you look at the Davidic covenant, just as an example, you see that when it was, you have the scriptural record of the establishment of the Davidic covenant, it never once is called a berit. Uh, The terminology doesn't occur. But later on, the scriptures themselves refer back to it as a berit. Now the simple point there is that just because the word doesn't appear doesn't mean that the covenant is not there. Uh, You don't have to have 
those specific Hebrew letters to constitute a covenant. Uh, a covenant is, is broader. It's, uh, it can be present where the word is not. So, I think you have to, it's a little bit, sounds strange that you have to ask a more sophisticated question than John Murray asked because he was brilliant, but I think you have to ask a, a more sophisticated question than what Murray was asking. Um, you certainly have to be very careful about vocabulary that the scriptures use. Uh, you know, we believe in plenary verbal inspiration. You know, the words that are used are important, but we also have to be aware of the, you know, the, uh, the notion in the confession that you also draw out from Scripture what is there by good and necessary consequence is the language that the confession uses in chapter 1, section 6. You know, it, while the word berit may not be in Genesis 1 and 2, can you look at Genesis 1 and 2 and by good and necessary consequence find a covenant? Uh, can you find a covenant between God and Adam before the fall? That's the question more so than the question of strict terminology. Now, to settle that question, a lot of people flip right to the book of Hosea. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. If you all have your Bibles, you can flip there. I'll read it to you. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, I was there, the Lord is calling His people to repentance through the prophet. And He says, referring to His people, but like men, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt treacherously with me. Now that's, the translation I'm using has, like men, they transgressed the covenant. Uh, Other translations have, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Um... In, the, in Hebrew, it's ke-adam, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Now, if you've had some Hebrew, you know that Adam can, can be a general noun referring to men, or it can be the personal name of Adam, the first man. So, some people look at Hosea 6-7 and say that it's saying that like Adam, Israel transgressed the covenant. Well, what covenant did Adam transgress? There must have been a covenant of works that Adam transgressed to which Hosea is referring back in his prophecy. Uh, Some people will flip right to this verse, Hosea 6, 7, and say that it uh, attests to a pre-fall covenant between God and Adam that Adam violated, uh, bringing sin into the world. Now, the the problem with that is that this particular preposition can mean a couple of different things. And so there's a lot of disagreement over exactly how to translate and understand Hosea 6-7, particularly this word. Some people will say that it ought to be translated at Adam, because this 
is can mean et, if you're familiar with Hebrew. It can mean et, Adam. So uh, some scholars will say that that ought to be translated that, but et, et Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt treacherously with me. With Adam, some means some unknown geographical location. That idea is not too widely held. It doesn't seem to hold much water. Uh, but the, the, the primary disagreement is that this can that it can mean either like men or like Adam. And if Hosea 6, 7 is saying that like men they transgress the covenant, it's not speaking as clearly to a pre-fall covenant between God and Adam. Uh, now I think that even if you translate it as like men, it still leads you toward a, a pre-fall covenant. But essentially, Hosea 6, 7, the, un, the, the language of Hosea 6, 7 is not strong enough to support on its own a pre-fall covenant between God and Adam. I think it points that direction. It indicates that way, but it's not. You can't defend a covenant of works based on Hosea 6, 7. Um, Rather than doing that, you know, rather than uh, looking at later scriptural, scriptural reflections on a covenant with Adam, what you have to do is go into Genesis 1 and 2 itself and see if in Genesis 1 and 2 you can find a covenant. Is, is, are the scriptures there telling us of a covenant between God and Adam? Now, Before we even get there, I think it's also important to look at Genesis 6.18. Now, we said a minute ago that um, Berit does not occur in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It doesn't occur to refer to God's relationship to Adam and Adam's innocence. The first occurrence of Berit comes in Genesis 6.18, and there it refers to the covenant between God and Noah. And there in Genesis 6, 18, uh, God says to Noah, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives, with you. And does, did, didn't you all have the, your Hebrew Bibles with you by any chance? Do you want to do a little Hebrew reading? Or I can just do them. <laughs> but, most guys chomp at the bit to do that. <laughs> uh, Genesis Yes, you, you can stop there. It's mercifully short. Wait, the, <laughs> that, 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 that first word in the, in the, in the verse, I don't know if you all, uh, uh, hmm? it's, it's I will establish. Now, if you all remember from last time, uh, from last week, we talked about uh, the, the Hebrew uh, language, the, the Hebrew terminology, for covenant, we said covenant itself is always berit, but there were the three different verbs that are always paired with covenant. And one of those words, if y'all remember, was hekim. 
uh, Hakim being the, the Hifil form of Kum. And we said that when Hakim Barit occurs, it's referring not to the establishment of a covenant, not to the initial inauguration of a covenant, but rather it's referring to the perpetuation or the continuation of a covenant. Uh, Hakim Barit supposes that there is a pre-existing covenant that's being continued. When you get to Genesis 6.18, it is Hakim Barit that's being used there. Uh, the first time that Barit occurs in the Scripture, even at a grammatical level, the Scriptures are recognizing that there is a previous covenant that's being continued or perpetuated. Now, that's not referring to the covenant of works. I think there, you know, the Scriptures are referring to the continuation of the covenant of grace that had been uh, at least temporarily inaugurated with Adam after the fall. But the, the point is that it establishes the fact that even the first time that the language of Berit occurs in the Scriptures, the grammar itself tells us that Berit, the concept, has existed before. There has been a divine covenant before Genesis 6.18. And the just the, the simple grammar that's being used in Genesis 6.18 recognizes that. So again, it makes us ask the question, not does the word berit occur in Genesis 1 and 2, but rather in what Genesis 1 and 2 tells us, is there a covenant relationship? Because Genesis 6.18 has already told us that somewhere before Genesis 6.18, there is a covenant. Does all that make sense? I appreciate your Hebrew skills. Always good to be put on the spot to read a foreign language. Um, so let's, we'll, for the time we have left, we'll go to Genesis 1 and 2, and we'll start uh, working our way through it uh, to see whether we can locate a covenant of works in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, we're going to, you know, over the, you know, the little bit of time we have left today and then next week, we're going to spend a good bit of time on the covenant of works. Um, Oftentimes, the covenant of works is glossed over. You say, well, you know, Adam told not to eat the tree. Told, you know, if he did, he'd die. So there's your covenant. Move on to the covenant of grace. Uh, but I think that when you do that, it terribly truncates the covenant of works. It distorts our understanding of it. It, leads, it, it lends itself to the critiques of a Karl Barth and others. Um, essentially, it distorts our understanding of covenant theology if we don't spend you know, a little bit of time on the covenant of work. So I, you know, I do want to we're going to spend some time working through the full implications uh, and the full contents of the covenant of works. Now, before we start there, we'll probably need to remind ourselves what exactly we're looking for. Uh, we said last week that uh, a covenant is a binding relationship between two parties that involves both blessings and obligations. So, in the biblical account of Genesis 1 and 2, do we find that sort of a relationship? Do we find a binding relationship between two parties that involves both blessings and obligations? Now, um, like I said, we tend to, when we look at the covenant of works, we tend to go right to Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, where God tells Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And certainly that's part of the covenant of works, uh, but it's only part of the covenant of works. Uh, if you've uh, read the reading out of Robertson, 
already, you see that he is very concerned to broaden our understanding of the covenant of works. He says if you, if you limit it to just that prohibition, there are a whole manner of ways in which our understanding of various areas of theology, our understanding of Christian life uh, are drastically reduced if we don't take account of the fullness of the covenant of works. And Robertson says that we need to distinguish between what he calls the general aspects of the covenant of works and the focal aspects of the covenant of works. On the one hand, you have the general aspects, just the, the general contours of the covenantal relationship. And on the other hand, you have the focal aspect, the, the one point at which man was tested in the covenant of works, obviously that being the, the prohibition not to eat of the tree. Now certainly that's important to you know, keep in mind the general aspects and the focal aspect. But I think also we need to uh, consider a further aspect to the covenant of works. Uh, we said last week that a covenant is a relationship within parameters, if you all remember that particular little phrase. So I think it's important for us first to consider the relationship aspect of the covenant of works and then to consider the parameter aspect of the covenant of works. And both the general and the focal aspects that Robert, Robertson talks about both of them fit within the parameters of the covenant of works. I want us to start behind that even by looking at the relationship aspect of the covenant of works. And when you come to Genesis 1 and 2, you find that those chapters really are swollen with the relational aspects of the covenant of works. Now, liberal scholars have long recognized that there are at least what they call two creation accounts in Genesis. Uh, you have one account in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3, and then in chapter 2, verse 4, you have a second creation account, uh, the liberal scholars say. Uh, and so they say, you know, these are two different traditions uh, that are being put together by a later editor. Well, there are, in fact, two different views of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, but essentially what you have happening is in the first account, in Genesis 1-1 through 2-3, you had the Scripture setting all of God's creative work in its proper context, uh, particularly man. Man is set in his proper creational context. But then when you move into chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of chapter 2, you see more about the particular covenantal relationship that was established between God the Creator and man as his creation. Now, there's a, there's a purpose for these twin accounts in the Scriptures. Uh, the, the, the two accounts together are clarifying the pre-fall relationship between God and Adam. Uh, in Genesis chapter 1, you have this, you know, this sweeping overview of God's creation. Uh, God creates all things of nothing in six days. And as you read through Genesis chapter 1 a sort of refrain starts to develop. Uh, whenever God creates any form of life, whether it's plant or animal, whichever one, the scriptures always say that God made the specific creature after its kind. Uh, each animal was made uh, like the other animals of its kind. There was a commonality amongst the animals. Uh, deer looked like deer and 
whales looked like whales and oak trees looked like oak trees. Uh, there was a commonality uh, amongst species, you could say, within the creation. Now you see that in uh, on day three of creation with regard to plant life in Genesis 1, 11, and 12. Uh, you see it on day five in relation to marine life in Genesis 1, 21. You see it in regard to the land-bound animal life on day 6 in chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. You know, this constantly reminding us that everything is being made according to its kind. Uh, In fact, in verses 24 and 25 of Genesis 1, uh, that phrase, according to its kind, appears five times. Within two verses, you get it five times. Uh, Everything is being made after its kind. But then you get to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And in 126, you get to the creation of man. And in Genesis 126, after you've had this, you know, according to its kind, drilled into your head so many times, in 26 you read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. All of the rest of creation had been made after its kind, after its genus, but man was made after God's kind, after God's genus. Uh, Man wasn't made like himself. He was made after God. He was made after God's image. Now, certainly you have to be careful in saying that man is like God, um, but the, the Scriptures pretty clearly lay out that whereas the rest of creation resembled itself, Man resembled God. Now, the, the picture that's given of man is rather complex. On the one hand, man is very much a part of the creation. Uh, you get that particularly in Genesis 2, 7, where we read that, that man was made out of the dust of the ground. Uh, man wasn't created out of nothing. He was made out of material. Uh, he's very much part of the creation. But at the same time, he bears the divine impress of his creator. Uh, it's look at Genesis two seven. Um, you kind of get both of them together there in, in that one verse. On the one hand, man's part of the creation. Uh, Genesis two seven says that the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. He's he's made out of the material creation. But at the same time, two seven goes on to say that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Now, God made man out of material matter, but he gave him life with his own breath. Now, I don't think that, at least I can't conceive of a more intimate sort of creation that could be possible. God takes the dust of the ground, a dust that he had made, and he crafts it into the shell of a man, a man that has lungs that don't breathe and eyes that don't see and a heart that doesn't beat, just a shell of a man. And then God literally breathes the breath of life into him. The the first breath that mankind drew was the exhalation of God. When Adam first opened his eyes in life, he was looking at his creator, the creator whose breath was filling his lungs. The, the, The creation of man with this uh, the giving of life to man with this breath of God uh, presents what seems to me to be about as intimate of a creation as you can imagine. Uh, God is breathing life 
into this man. You know, the fish are like the fish, the birds are like the birds, the animals are like the animals, but man is like God. Uh, he has breathed in the very breath of God. And so you have from the very start this radical distinction between mankind on the one hand and all the rest of creation. Man is made in the image of God. Uh, the, you oftentimes hear it referred to as the Imago Dei, that man is made uh, in the image of God. Now, that involves a whole lot of things. Uh, being made in the image of God, uh, on the one hand, expresses itself in what man does, uh, particularly through his exercise of dominion. You know, God uh, creates man in his image to exercise dominion on his behalf. Man essentially rules uh, in God's place on, on the earth. But it's also expressed in who man is. Um, you know, the Imago Dei may mean other things as well, but it at least means that man was created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, which is how the Shorter Catechism puts it in question number 10, or I guess answer number 10, um, that man was created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Now, in, in that creation of man, obviously, you have a really an indescribable chasm between man and the rest of creation. Man is categorically different from the rest of creation. He's in the image of God, and no one and nothing else is. Um, and in that image bearing, you have the foundation for the relationship between God and man. And we said that a, a covenant is a binding relationship, and from his very creation, you see that man has been in the very closest of relationships to God. A man bears his image. Uh, he is God's representative on the earth. Uh, there is the, the very closest of relationships. Um, or else that's kind of stopping mid-thought, but it's about one minute to twelve, so I suppose we probably should. Um, like I said, we're... we're, uh, we're you know, in, in trying to find and trying to see whether there is, in fact, a covenant between God and man and his innocence in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, we see, even in the couple minutes that we had, that there is this very closest of relationships between God and man uh, that's based on this Imago Dei, on the fact that man is bearing the image of God in a way that no other part of the creation does. Uh, so we have at least the first component of this covenantal relationship, a, a, a relationship between God and man. Are there any questions on the little bit we've covered so far? Um, I had no idea that um, John Murray, um, just because the scriptures didn't use the word explicitly bereaved, but um, you know when he defends the uh, Trinity, the word Trinity doesn't occur in the Bible, but why does he um, not see the nuances from Genesis 1 and 2 like, like we're well, he um, that's a good question. It, it's uh, now, like I said, you know, Murray he he has four reasons that he doesn't recognize as a covenant, and the the other three don't make as much sense until we've looked at the whole of the covenant work. So we'll come back to them at the end. Uh, but he but he, he a, a lot of it does come back to the, the absence of the terminology in Genesis 1 and 2. And as for why he would 
decline to recognize that as a covenant, whereas he would recognize the Trinity is a, a good question. I, I'm, I'm not sure how, how that played out in his mind. The, the one thing that is striking about it is, you know, I think I mentioned in volume two of his collective works, Murray has about a 12, 13 page essay on the Adamic administration. And in that, there's about three quarters of a page worth where he goes through his four objections for why it's not, or why it ought not be considered a covenant. And if you take out those three-fourths of a page and just read the rest of it, you would think he was describing the covenant of works. I mean, he, everything, everything else is what, you, what we would see as a covenant of works. Uh, he he's very, has, has a, a really strong understanding of a lot of it. He just, on some level, has a, a reticence about calling it a covenant when it is not in there, and I'm not not sure exactly why, <laughs> but his, um, like I say, his his understanding of what he what he calls the Adamic administration is a, a pretty pretty well formulated covenant of works. He just doesn't call it that. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.